Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, Mickey here. You are listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Andrew or Drew Best about the limit of human energy expenditure. Now, this is related to, or a carry on, if you like, from my Herman Ponzer interview that we did back on episode 51, and I believe that was October 2021. Drew is currently a PhD student of Ponce's and he is studying the limit of human performance or rather energy expenditure in a group of elite level endurance runners and cyclists to determine whether the theoretical ceiling of 2.5 times our basal metabolic rate holds for these outlying individuals. In our discussion, we talk about how basal metabolic rate is measured, if we can shift our BMR, how to measure total energy expenditure, and why a high total energy expenditure is risky from an evolutionary standpoint, because Andrew is a biological anthropologist, so this is a particular interest of his. We also discuss the contribution of non-exercise activity thermogenesis and how this may change when we ramp up activity, and specifically what Drew is finding in his study of the elite athletes and what contributions that he is making to the literature base in this space. I think you're going to really like this interview regardless of whether or not you're an athlete. As a teacher, Drew really comes, really is able to share his knowledge in a really translatable way. So that's really cool. So Andrew Best is a biological anthropologist and assistant professor of biology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. He's also a respectable endurance athlete in his own right. Drew is currently conducting, as I said, his research project on ultramarathon and ultra-endurance athletes and looking at testing the limits of a human metabolic scope. And we've got links to where you can find Drew over on the show notes, be it his website, therunningprimate.com, Instagram at the same handle, and at runningprimate on Twitter. And we've also got his Strava handle there just for you Strava guys. All right team, before we crack on into the episode, I would like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts so more people get the opportunity to learn from guests that I have on the show, such as Assistant Professor Best. All right, enjoy this conversation. Drew, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me this morning about your research and your knowledge in and around the limits of human performance. And I got to say, this whole area confuses me no end, but I constantly go round and round in my head as to how these concepts exist in the, in particularly the endurance space, which is the space that I'm in. And of course, the space that you're researching and just, um, I don't know, trying to put together in my head what I see in clinical practice, but also what we see in research and stuff. So I'm hoping that you're going to at least help unveil some of these things for me this morning. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> so uh, um, I've actually spoken to Herman Ponce on a podcast before uh, when he uh, when his book Burn came out, which was super interesting when, of course, he was discussing just the uh, the the differences in energy expenditure between the sort of more traditional populations versus your sort of standard American lifestyle actually not being that different, which doesn't really make sense to a lot of people as to how that could even be true until, of course, you start thinking about the energy conservation uh, uh, sort of theory and and what goes on in the body when we are super active. Um, firstly, though, before we get into the nuts and bolts of that energy expenditure, 
What is your background? How did you actually get interested in the area? Because I understand you haven't, you're sort of a, not a late bloomer as such, but you've, you've, you've done things not conventionally speaking to, to the usual timeline. I think saying that I'm a late bloomer is totally fair. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm 40 and I'm only in year two of my first academic job as a faculty member. So, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm a late bloomer. Yeah. Um, so the long story short, I taught high school biology for 15 years, um, mostly here in Massachusetts, USA. Um, and partway through that, I was developing a lesson on human evolution or actually a whole unit. And through that process, I discovered, um, it's a paper you might be familiar with. And if you're not, you'll love it. Um, a 2000 paper, uh, a 2004 paper by Dennis Bramble, um, and Dan Lieberman, called um, Endurance Running and the Evolution of Homo. So it laid out the whole hypothesis that, hey, actually lots of lots of the attributes that we see in modern humans can be explained by a period of selection for endurance running. So we've evolved to run, right? And that was very compelling to me because I'm a runner and even more so then, and I've always been into human evolution and the idea that, you know, we are evolved animals and what does that mean? So yeah. that that really lit the fire. And I went back to school for a master's and PhD in biological anthropology. And my research so far has been on sweating, uh, you know, the evolution of sweating, what's the variation in how many sweat glands people have, stuff like that, which we talk about if it's interesting. You're not particularly interested in that anymore, are you? I, it, it's on pause, but mostly because I only have time to do one, one project at a time because yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm teaching so much. So I'm at a school that does a lot of teaching. And so the research is, you know, you kind of squeeze it in where you can. Um, so, yeah, I, I read a lot of Herman Ponser's papers. Um, he was one of the handful of scientists that really sort of spoke to my interests. Um, and so at some point, I think I emailed him or maybe messaged him on Twitter and asked him some questions. And um, it was maybe two or three years ago that um, – an ultra marathon runner, uh, Joe McConaughey, who I'd met at a race, reached out to me and said, hey, I would like to get some data on this Arizona trail effort that I'm doing. And he ended up setting the FKT on the Arizona trail. And he said, do you know what kind of data we can get? And can you do this? And I said, uh, at the moment, I don't. But I know some people who can help us. And this will be a great learning curve. So that was the beginning of it. And we got total energy expenditure data on Joe during that effort and during a period of training. And that was kind of a proof of concept where Herman and I uh, basically saw, hey, we can we can get really useful data doing this. And this will let us test some of Herman's ideas um, in a way that hasn't really been done before. So here we are. And in particular, what sort of hypothesis or, you know, what are you actually testing with the likes of the data from that athlete and, of course, subsequently in your research that are moving forward? Yeah, so I guess the simpler data that we're getting is just to better define the relationship between how long you're doing a maximal effort and the energy expenditure that's required of that effort, right? And so we're finding that um, there is a logarithmic relationship between how far you're going and how many calories you can spend doing that at a maximal effort, which isn't really all that surprising. And I mean, in some ways, that's just an extension of, you know, you can only use this much oxygen if you're, you know, running a marathon. But if you're running a shorter distance, you can afford, you know, to go on oxygen debt. It's kind of an extension of that concept. Um, so we're doing that, too. But primarily, we're testing what we're calling the 2.5 times BMR hypothesis, which um, Herman may have talked about with you. I haven't had a chance to listen to your episode. Oh, please you. remind us, because I talk to so many people, I've forgotten almost everything. Okay, sure, fair <laughs> enough. So a couple of years ago, um, Herman and one of his grad students um, and some other researchers published a paper um, getting total energy expenditure data, I can redefine that later, um, on, on folks running across the U.S. So it was a stage race. They're running across the U.S., basically a marathon a day for, I think it was six weeks or something. Um, and as part of that, he also um, uh, reanalyzed some data that had been presented maybe first by Westerterp, um, a researcher, yeah, sort of the early 2000s, who had actually uh, suggested, hey, look, there there seems to be a common limit 
to basically how much energy a person can expend over the long haul. So we're calling this sustained metabolic scope. So your metabolic scope would be um, your basal metabolic rate. So the calories it takes just to keep you alive, plus all the other things that you're spending energy on. So we would call that total energy expenditure. And metabolic scope is just a measure of what is your total energy expenditure divided by your basal metabolic rate. So how many times over and above your basal metabolic rate are you are you living at? And is that the 2.5 that you mentioned? Right, right. So Westerterp and then Ponser um, have been noticing that the limit seems to be about two and a half, roughly, times basal metabolic rate. And that seems to be common, basically not not just to runners, you know, uh, in their in their training over the course of months or a year, but also cyclists. Um, you can see it really any kind of endurance athlete. But then, crucially, any person who is living a really high energy lifestyle, um, you know, whether that be um, really intensive farming. So you know, maybe during certain seasons of the year, it's very intensive. Um, those people also seem to be getting close to, but not exceeding two and a half times basal metabolic rate. So this seems to be a limit that is intrinsic to human physiology and not just something related to athletic performance. So, which has led Ponser and others to, to say, this is probably a limit set by your digestion. How many calories you can eat? How many calories you can actually extract from your food and then assimilate and store as glycogen, as, you know, usable triglycerides, et cetera. So that's really what we're testing. We want to know what are the limits to human energy expenditure? Is it around two and a half? Um, we're thinking it might be a little bit more, but or so really the population we're working with is ultra marathon runners expanding out a little bit to other types of ultra endurance athletes, you know, maybe some cyclists, um, but people who sort of form a natural experimental group folks who have you know nutrition dialed in many of them are professionals or at least they're really able to prioritize training and recovery and you know because we're modern humans we have access to unlimited calories so we're not suggesting that this is how early humans ever lived no right? no no but we're saying that this is almost a natural experiment with these people to see what are the limits of human energy expenditure when when these other factors that would normally come into play have sort of been controlled. Okay. And even though this this group is, they're almost outliers of the general population, this is one of the reasons why you're interested in, in studying them. Absolutely. And as an anthropologist, I, I would be remiss if I, if I didn't, you know, at least try to explain that when you're working with a population that are outliers, you need to understand they're not representative of all humans. But in this case, the way that they're outliers makes them perfect for testing these questions. Yeah, for sure. So, Drew, I've got heaps of questions that arise just even from that and the whole idea of that sort of energy extraction. Um, I start thinking about things like the gut and start thinking about um, the uh, thrifty gene hypothesis and, and all of the things that come into how energy is sort of uh, taken on board and also um, used. But can we actually start with energy expenditure. So obviously you mentioned BMR, basal metabolic rate, and then these other things which then sort of determine our overall energy expenditure. So my first question is, how reliable are those calculators that you find online for determining your metabolic rate? So that's my first question, and then I'll go on to you getting you to define energy expenditure in those little buckets. Yeah, I, I think if you're talking about estimating your basal metabolic rate, um, which is a much easier thing to estimate. Yes. Some of the calculators are okay. Um, I've some used a couple. Are okay. That's... <laughs> some, yeah, yeah. I would say pro probably most of them are okay. Um, the ones that are so the ones that are better. So Ponser actually just recently came up with an updated equation that seems to be the best yet. Oh, amazing! Is it available? Yes, it's in one of his papers, but I could send it to you if you're interested. I, oh, I have it somewhere. I can PubMed it easily yeah. enough, so that's all, all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah, Thank no, you. we'll do that. <clears throat> so someone really should be making an online calculator based on that. Yes. But, you know, any of the more 
recent ones. Um, you know, there's been a bunch of studies that have taken um, basal metabolic rate measured through the gold standard, which would be calorimetry, you know, basically putting on the mask and measuring oxygen consumption um, for, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, or even better, have someone living in a metabolic chamber for 24 hours doing nothing really calculated. So there have been studies that basically um, get those data. And then from that, you can sort of extrapolate what a usable equation is to estimate, you know, basal metabolic rate. So the short answer <laughs> would be that they're okay. You know, you might get within one or 200 calories of what your BMR actually is using one of those calculators. But as soon as you try to estimate, and I've seen calculators that do this, you know, what is your total energy expenditure? And then they try to factor in activity level, things like that. And then it's just uh, a total crapshoot. What's sort of like what you see when you use your Garmin watch and you go out for a run and then you come back and it says, well, that was 996 calories that you just burnt during that run. Is that slightly more accurate than what I might find on the on on the internet? Or is it actually as variable in terms of its accuracy? That's a good question. I'm sure that someone has actually looked at this and published on it, and I have not read it, so I will not claim expertise here. But I would imagine those are at least a little better because at least it knows how far you went, what your elevation gain was, <clears throat> and those are really your... So the things that are going to mostly explain how much energy you're using at rest would be your fat-free mass. So that's why a BMR calculator is fairly accurate because if it knows how much you weigh, and especially if you know your body fat percentage so that you can tell it what your fat-free mass is, you know, uh, the BMR estimates are okay. If you're looking at an estimate of your activity energy expenditure, you can get maybe a reasonable estimate if you know how far you went and how much you weigh, right? Because the cost of of running is not highly variable between it's not super variable between people as long as you know body mass right so after you account for body mass that that sort of explains most of the variation yeah cool um which as you know does not change all that much whether you're running faster or slower it's isn't that interesting like when you feel like when you're out on a run and you're sort of doing intervals you're doing that part we've got park run here you know, i don't know if does america have park run Park run. Yeah. Um, no. Oh, it's, this is massive. Like it's it, it was originated in the UK. It's been around for maybe ten years now, and it's this phenomenal free five k event that people can go along to, and they turn up with their little chip, and it's like running a a, a race, a five k race, but it's got it's got everything that you want in a race and all the stuff that you don't. Anyway, but you feel like when you run like a like a super fast 5K versus you just jogging around the course that you're actually going to be burning more calories because of it. But is that actually not the case? Right. So you're burning more calories per per unit time, but not per unit distance, right? So you run three miles easy, you might burn 400 calories if you're an average weight person. Yeah. If you run it hard, you might burn 400 calories. But because you're condensing that same energy expenditure into a shorter period of time, yeah. Uh, to do that, you're now really requiring your muscle fibers to generate ATP anaerobically. And, you know, that leads to all of the unpleasant symptoms of, well, now you're going to be diverting more blood flow away from your intestines and to the muscles. And so you're going to have gastrointestinal distress and, you know, your uh, blood pH is dropping a bit and you're feeling that anaerobic panic. Yes. But yeah, roughly the same number of calories though. Ah, oh, mate. I mean, that's really good intel <laughs> anyway so there's this reason to slow down yeah, right? exactly slow down. and enjoy it god get, mo get the most out of your run okay so so obviously we've got the energy expend we've got the 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 activity but where else in that sort of energy equate also energy expenditure model where else do we sort of expend calories yeah okay so you've got your basal metabolic rate you've got your activity energy expenditure which some people would parse into exercise and non-exercise activity. So walking around the office, um, you know, the example I use in classes, I'm writing on the board. This isn't taking very much energy, but it does count as physical activity expenditure. I just lump them together. Any any physical activity, that's one category. Basal metabolic rate's another. Um, another big one would be the cost of digestion, which does take calories. So we call the thermic effect of food just because, you know, it is like producing heat as the byproduct of, of that energy mm -hmm. expenditure. And the other one, which is only really a factor if you're in a 
fairly cold environment or you just keep the heat down in your house really low would be um, thermal regulation. So to stay warm, that that can cost some calories. I think if you're in a really cold climate, like you're, you know, uh, camping outdoors in the winter, that can be a couple hundred calories a day. Yeah. Okay. But in, in most environments, it would be fairly negligible. Okay. So Drew, like how... So, I mean, it's fairly obvious just talking to you, you know, where the variation comes in terms of our overall energy expenditure. But what about in these seemingly sort of fixed areas like basal metabolic rate feels to me like it would be fairly fixed. And and even actually, this was a surprise to me, is that the amount of fat-free mass that you accrue doesn't necessarily boost your metabolism by hundreds of calories every day um, when you start to build lean mass. Uh, how changeable is our BMR? Like, can we manipulate it to burn more calories easily? Great question. Um, and I gave this a little bit of thought this morning before we spoke, yeah. and I took some notes here just so I would remember what I wanted to say. So, okay, can you increase your BMR over time? I know this is not what you're asking, but I sort of am actually. Well, what I'm about to say is not directly answering your question. I would like to start by just saying, why would you want to? Right? <laughs> yes. Um, to eat I know more. <laughs> some obesity researchers are interested in that. I mean, it's it's a potential. I don't want to say silver bullet, but it's maybe a tiny silver bullet for the obesity epidemic. Is yes. if we can find a way to get people to crank up their BMR, um, then yeah, you're just burning more calories at rest, you know, you're going to accrue less uh, fat tissue, et cetera, et cetera. And that, and that really could be a good thing, but I'm not an obesity researcher, but it seems kind of seems to me that putting the focus on increasing your BMR is not nearly as useful and won't bear as much fruit as the things that we already know you can do, which would be increasing physical activity expenditure um, and reducing calorie intake. Yeah. And I think we've largely failed, though, at, you know, convincing people that we need to do those things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> which is maybe why we're talking about can you increase BMR. So that said, can you increase BMR? You already pointed out one of the ways, and that would be to add muscle mass. And other than that, and I'm not, I have not read all the literature on this. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I am not really aware of any other ways to really increase BMR other than, like, stimulant drugs and like mm -hmm. metabolic drugs that are used for obesity and things like that. Um, but I think there's some decent evidence that you can avoid reducing your BMR by eating enough. I don't want to oversimplify this and sound kind of pseudoscience-y, but if you're, mm -hmm. if you're eating less than you need, then your body's response is to metabolically compensate more. And so you're slowing down your metabolism. It's almost like you're clicking your body over into that starvation mode, which I believe will slow down your BMR a bit. So if that's not something you want to do, I mean, this is very anecdotal, but the concept of um, skinny fat and, you know, some athletes definitely experience this, but certainly non-athletes that you can be a very lean looking person. But if you're not eating a lot of calories and you're not getting a lot of activity, you might have more adipose tissue than you think and less muscle mass than you think. So ways to increase BMR. Well, first of all, eat enough, right? Don't, don't, uh, don't make your body think that it needs to hang on to everything. And I guess the other one, um, I'm sure we'll get into this, but so we're seeing from Ponser's work that BMR, well, we think it's BMR, um, tends to reduce a bit as you become physically active, but crucially that's, sort of a long-term thing, but if you take a snapshot in the hours to even 24 hours after a workout, your BMR is elevated, right? So interesting. So that is that different from uh the concept of epoch exercise. That is epoch. It is okay, yeah, because I've all I've seen varying sort of reports on how um how much this might impact BMR, you know, in, in an, any sort of meaningful way. But are we thinking that so, so the the last that I had been look, I'm not up to the to the play with the science, but um, the last I had heard is that it actually doesn't make that much difference. But in fact, do we think that it may play a bigger role than than I might be giving it credit for? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I guess, I mean, the fact that that we're seeing metabolic compensation, which I guess we haven't yet defined, in in people who are very active, tells us that 
that the the bump in BMR from EPOC, which is which is transient, is not enough to actually overcome the overall reduction in BMR that you get. So when I measure BMR in the lab, I want people to have not done any exercise for 12 hours and they can't have done a hard workout the day before because I don't want that that epoch, which is really just a that's just your body recovering from the last workout. I don't I don't want that to mask or you know to artificially inflate BMR. So I think that was a long-winded answer. Is epoch going to contribute meaningfully to an increase in BMR in a way that could be helpful for weight loss? No, I don't think so. Yeah, interesting. Well, Drew, you mentioned metabolic uh, compensation. And I have a number of clients who report to me, and because as a as a nutritionist who is an endurance athlete, a lot of the people I see are also endurance athletes, and they are struggling with improving their body composition, uh, yet seem to be eating very little. So, um, and then they might they might be on eighteen hundred, two thousand calories, yet uh, burning sort of you know. An, an additional, I don't know, seven or 800 calories on top of that, yet not seeing changes in their body composition. So is the metabolic compensation concept the thing that might be occurring in that, um, in that setting? I think that is what Ponser's data would suggest. Yeah. And I believe so, yeah. So I guess we should probably start by defining what we mean by this metabolic compensation, right? So this is... Um, um, so Herman Ponser has termed this uh, constrained energy expenditure, right? Where if you, so let's say you increase your activity and energy expenditure by a thousand calories a day. So you start running nine miles a day or something more than you used to. Um, the old model would basically predict that your total energy expenditure is going to be a thousand calories higher than it was before because you're you're adding a thousand calories worth of activity expenditure. Metabolic compensation is basically saying, well, over weeks and months and years, your body gets used to the, those thousand calories that you're burning, and your body finds ways of reducing energy expenditure elsewhere. And there's some per, uh, there's some preliminary evidence that some of that's coming out of BMR. So maybe reduced investment in sex hormones, reduced um, investment in, in, in immune system energy expenditure. And some of it's probably coming from things like fidgeting and voluntary activity. All right. So after a run, what do you do? You flop and you stay flopped as long as you can. So in all those ways, you're reducing energy expenditure somewhere else. And some of the data that have come out so far are, are showing it can be 20 to 30%. What that would translate to is, if your clients are expecting that they're burning an extra thousand calories a day, because that's what they're burning with exercise, 20 to 30% means they might only be burning um, seven to 800 extra calories a day. Yeah. So that's something that gets lost in the mix and in the headlines that you see um, based on this work. You know, there have been headlines like uh, exercise does not work for weight loss, exercise is of time for weight loss. And I think that's overstating the point because you're still going to be burning seven or 800 calories more total, just not a thousand. So there are limits to how much your body can metabolically compensate. And I can tell you that, you know, we've measured some, some endurance runners who are burning four and a half thousand calories a day on average year round. So it's totally possible. You just have to do a lot. Yeah, for sure. And are they also eating four and a half thousand calories to remain in energy balance? They must be. We have not asked them to track nutrition, but, you know, basic laws of physics are telling us that, yeah, they must be because they're not, you know, they're not dramatically changing weight. So, yeah. Yeah. So interesting. And um, Drew, with regards to the, again, if I just go back to that basal metabolic rate, and in fact, I remember what I was going to ask you, do different dietary patterns can that increase basal metabolic rate? So, you know, I've seen sort of research looking at whether a uh, low carbohydrate, high fat diet, does it change um, the uh, number of uh, calories we burn on a daily basis? Like what is the understanding there? Do you know? That's a great question. Um, I looked into this a little bit for a class that I'm teaching. It's so the best thing about teaching, you learn so much. Seriously, it's great. It's 
it and it's it's time that I have to devote to these interesting questions that I otherwise would. Um, and with that being said, I don't think I have a great answer to that. My my impression from looking at some of the meta studies and stuff is, is that um, all the hype about various kinds of diets actually changing your BMR in a in a way that's meaningful for weight loss, which is what most people care about. I think there's probably not not very good evidence for that. We do know that low carb diets can be a very useful weight loss tool, especially initially. I'm not aware of data though that that like definitively show that that's increasing BMR so much as mobilizing uh, sort of mobilizing fat tissue for you know for burning you know for metabolism. Um, and I think that those 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 diets mostly work also because they tend to put you in a negative energy balance. So what I think all, I mean, you're a nutritionist, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what all successful weight loss diets seem to have in common is that you're actually eating less than you were before. A hundred percent. Yeah. So calories in calories out, you know, people like to say, no, that's wrong. We have a new model. It, it still seems to mostly, it's like calories in calories out. It's a little more complicated than that, but not much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, a hundred percent. That's as I understand it as well. Um, and and with the the participants in your study, um, and I'd really love to actually chat about the the information that you are gathering. But do you know how they're eating and whether they have different dietary patterns, which which may also sort of play into that energy expenditure sort of piece? That's a great question. We we haven't really gotten there. Um, only with one of our. I mean, I know anecdotally that. You know, these athletes have varying uh, diets. Uh, one of them is vegan. And yeah, some others have a really varied diet. Um, I know one guy is very carbohydrate heavy. Um, but as far as actually getting those data, we only have them from one of the athletes so far because he's, and that's Joe McConaughey. I can say his name. He's like so on board with this. He doesn't care if we identify him. Um, he's, a, he's a great guinea pig. Uh, no offense, Joe. I mean, that is a <laughs> And so his wife, Katie, is actually training as a nutritionist. And so she has been getting Brilliant. some of his uh, nutrition data. Um, and so we know, so we have a good sense of what he eats during ultramarathon competitions and also baseline. But I think to be able to, I mean, any of the differences in total energy expenditure that could possibly be caused by diet I think the effect size would be so small because as we've been saying, it really is mostly calories in, calories out. And then the fine tuning other than that is, you know, I think minimal. We would need a huge sample size of athletes that I don't think we're ever going to get. So I don't think our our data will ever really be able to help answer the question, does your diet does the composition of your diet actually affect your total energy expenditure? Yeah, no, it's a super interesting concept. And I was chatting to an exercise physiologist friend who is largely a lower carbohydrate. He he does huge volumes of, of exercise and he's up there in the sort of um, uh, more the sort of sub-elite doesn't sound like a great category to be in, but, you know, he is one of the people who'd be perfect for a study like yours, for example. And we were just having that conversation about his diet and how it might, you know, impact on, um, on, uh, on what you might see with someone like him. And in fact, he gave me his details to pass on to you just in case you were looking for people. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Andrew, obviously our body compensates for a reason. And, you know, you, there is that, uh, that threshold of potentially 2.5, which you are thinking with these outliers could actually be a little bit higher. Why is high energy expenditure so risky for us as humans? Yeah, so it's great. I, I love the anthropological questions and the evolutionary questions because that, in theory, is what we're really getting at, right? Which is funny because most of, you know, most of what we talk about with this project is what are the applications going to be for athletes? I'm not sure yet, but we do know that an application in terms of evolutionary understanding. Um, so it's really no longer risky for most of us because um, if, if you live in the developed world, you have probably too many calories. You know, I, I'm a mountain biker. I, I mean, I'm kind of a runner, but mostly I'm a mountain biker now. And I, right now, I'm very often training to the point of depletion. And there, you know, where I have a couple of days where I know that my glycogen has gone and I don't have to worry about that because I can eat all the food I want. <laughs> yeah. And it's still limiting. I'm still, it still takes a couple of days, you know, to rebuild, you know, those energy stores. But um, it used to be risky, certainly, 
and it would be risky for any animal that's living out there in the world. Or if you're a hunter-gatherer right now, actually living off the land, it is still risky just because we we burn a lot of calories. We are the primates who kind of went in the other direction. And instead of decreasing our energy expenditure, we are a, you know, we're a high burning primate. So the risk is you don't have enough energy and you start to starve. Mm-hmm. So this is probably why, and this is true for all animals, right? I mean, every mammal has mechanisms to conserve energy, um, you know, like mobilizing more fat for fuel, all those kinds of things. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if most mammals actually reduce their BMR in response to higher activity or reduce calorie intake, just like we do. That's probably true. But certainly relative to other primates, humans, it seems like underwent a, a, a period of uh, evolutionary pressures to make us even more austere in terms of energy savings. And sort of putting together the work of of others to kind of summarize where we fit or what our what our energetic characteristics are. Um, I mean, would you like the thirty second rundown of how we think this evolved? Yes, please. Okay. All right. So, um, <clears throat> so basically, primates. It'll actually be about a minute and a half, not thirty seconds. That's <laughs> fine. So we we are primates. Uh, primates in general have a slower metabolic rate versus other mammals. Um, and they're not very physically active generally. So they mostly get all the food they need in their immediate area. They do some climbing, whatever, but they're not, you know, they don't travel long distances. Humans, we have a really high metabolic rate. So a higher total energy expenditure than other primates. Um, and yet we also are physically active, very, you know, physically active. We have a high reproductive output. Um, yet we have a slow childhood. We have a long life and big brains. To an anthropologist, that's weird. I mean, for most animals, all those things wouldn't really go together. You'd have to make trade-offs. And we really didn't. You know, we have big brains, long childhood, we live a long time, and yet we have a high total energy expenditure. So how did we do this? How did we solve this problem, um, you know, without having too many trade-offs? So probably about 2 million years ago, around there, early in genus Homo, we developed a new ecological niche, a new way of extracting energy from the environment. Um, and that was to basically spend more energy getting food, but get higher quality food. So it's not so much that we're efficient with our with our foraging. It's that sort of high risk, high reward. And mm-hmm. that's how hunter-gatherers still do it. They'll walk five to 10 miles a day. Um, and, you know, there's digging and all this. But the food we're able to get is of a higher nutrient density than what other primates get. And that includes meat, that includes tubers, whatever. So this, you know, this new strategy uh, probably pushed the evolution of our endurance capabilities, right? So you can only be this high energy, big brained, high reproductive output primate if you have a way of, of getting all those calories. And for us, that was, you know, covering longer distances to find all kinds of different food stuff. So that's where our endurance comes from, running, walking, whatever. Um, and But there's actually two others. We also are fatter. We are fatter than other primates. So, uh, you know, to some people, it kind of sounds like a, like a contradiction. We are the running primate, right, if you will, but we're also the fat primate. And those actually go together really well. If you're going to be a high energy expenditure primate, you need to have more of a buffer for the times when you can't find enough food. And so that's why we're fatter than other primates. And I think the other piece that evolved, which is what we've been talking about, is that our metabolic rate has evolved to be sensitive to our physical activity level and how much food we're getting, right? And you know, there's even evidence that, I mean, this even goes kind of back generations, right? Like the maternal food environment seems to be having an effect on the future metabolism of the fetus. Almost like the fetus is predicting what the external environment will be. And this goes a step further, too. Not only is our metabolism finely tunable for how much activity we're doing and how much we're eating, but our exercise capacities are, too. Right. So so the reason why you're not just fit all the time is that it it takes energy to invest in greater bone density, greater muscle mass, more mitochondria, you know, 
increased left ventricle thickness, whatever, making more red blood cells, all the things that make you fit as an athlete take energy. And so instead of evolving to always be fit, we've evolved this highly sensitive plasticity where, you know, during times of high activity, our bodies respond to it and get fitter and they invest in those features that let us do that. But during lean times and times when we're not as active, it stops investing in those resources. And we call that detraining now. So that was the several minute tour of, you know, how our metabolism seems to have evolved and what that has to do with physical activity uh, and, and calories in the environment. Yeah, no, that's great, Drew. And what about the thrifty gene uh, hypothesis? Does this play a role in anything that you've just sort of described? Is the prevalence or the number of people that might sort of fit into that category so few that it doesn't really relate to the wider um, understanding of energy expenditure? Yeah, I. so I have to refresh my memory on the thrifty gene hypothesis. I think that's sort of a specific, it's saying there are certain populations of people that have Yes, right. that extract more calories from food than you would otherwise get because of the periods of lean in their history, right. I, be I believe, like I, I, I think. I believe that's it too. I don't know where the current evidence stands on that or what the current consensus is on that. I, I mean, I would say all of us have thrifty genes, just as, as we've been describing, but what the variation is across populations, I'm not sure. Um, I know that has been invoked to try to explain increased rates of obesity and diabetes in certain populations. I'm not, I'm not sure where we stand on that. So I won't comment on it. No, that's absolutely fine. And as I understand it, it is a, that very, it's, it's not something that could be uh, a predominant, it doesn't explain a lot of the obesity at all, like maybe a slither of, of the obesity sort of epidemic and, and things. Um, Andrew, what about gut function? Obviously, you know, it, it appears that people who, um, in, in from listening to you on another um, podcast, you talk about how, in fact, success almost relies on your ability to digest and absorb the calories you're taking in because then you'll be able to utilize them for energy. Like, uh, what role do you think the gut plays in our sort of um, overall ability to sort of uh, push through that ceiling of our metabolic limit? It, it seems like it probably sets the ultimate um, ceiling, right? So, you know, if you've sort of maximized or should I say optimized all your other systems that are involved in energy expenditure. So if we're talking about endurance sports, if you've, if you've trained, if, you know, you have a really huge capacity to store glycogen, if you have a high maximal fat, uh, fat oxidation rate in your mitochondria, et cetera, if your tendons and ligaments are strong enough to run for 100 miles, if you've done that stuff, then the ultimate ceiling is probably your absorptive capacity in your intestines. But how much variation there is between people, I don't know, and I don't think it's well understood. So there's a whole other area of research. And if anyone's listening and is like, oh, I know there's papers out there on this, uh, I would love to see them. I don't know what the variation is in that. I mean, certainly that's partly trainable, right? So within one person, like... Uh, ultra athletes train their gut. They train to tolerate and be able to actually absorb food while they're running, which is not really something your intestines want to do. They want to be shunting blood to your muscles instead. So it's trainable, but what is the variation between people? I don't know. Could that could that be one of the factors that explains um, you know ultra marathon performance? Are the best ultra runners those who have the best intestines? I mean, all other things being equal, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Drew, what is your research? So can you, um, and I, I know I leave it to like the last 10 minutes to ask you about your research particularly, but how is your research helping us um, sort of get a better understanding of this area? What are some interesting things that you're, what are you studying in a, you know, your 30-second elevator pitch, if there is such a thing? And what are you finding? Are you able to share any of that yet? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've got a paper in progress just based on the first six people that we've studied, but I don't mind talking about it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically we have measured total energy expenditure so far in six ultra marathon runners, both mm -hmm. during a period of life and training. So a baseline period and during a multi-day ultra marathon event, those two numbers let us basically generate um, a regression equation that tells us roughly how many calories a person is burning. These people are burning 
in relation to how many miles they're running. So we use that and we, we look at their training logs, which are mostly on Strava. And if they're not, I ask them to send them to me. And generate. It's very accurate. Actually, <laughs> well, I tell them it has to be accurate. I say, send me whatever yeah, yeah, is complete. Yeah. If it's not complete, oh. it's not worth doing. You know? Oh, but if it doesn't go on Strava, is it even worth talking? Like, Seriously. you know, I mean, did it even happen? I mean, I love Strava. I am fully committed to doing this. Strava, yeah. Strava if you want to sponsor me, you know, give me money for my <laughs> research, should. I will gladly shill for you anytime. Uh, Brilliant. Anyway. Uh, and I'm basically plugging their training numbers into this equation and estimating what their what their monthly and yearly calorie burn is. And with an estimated or a directly measured BMR, we get their metabolic scope. And so we're able to say, um, so far, the people we've looked at are living over the course of a year consistently at 2.2 to 2.6 times BMR. Oh, amazing. And so these are people who are really dedicating most of their lives to burning energy. And so the fact that they're not getting much above 2.5 is so far further evidence that there is this ceiling. But to to keep testing this question, we're going to you know, recruit another 10, maybe 20 more ultra endurance athletes and keep doing this. And I'm really aiming for some crazy high volume people now. Um, yeah, cool. Because- what is crazy high volume? Because I actually have a number like there. there I know people who people will be listening to this who will be like, oh, I wonder if I fall into that crazy high volume category. I mean, if you live close enough to the east coast of the U.S. that that, that you can ship frozen urine samples to us without them thawing. We're interested if you're if you're training twenty to thirty hours a week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That is actually that's a significant sort of chunk of time. And what? So, are there any any sort of explanatory things coming out which might explain the person who's at two point two versus two point six? No, which is really exciting. Okay. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing explains it yet, including how much they're running. I mean, oh, interesting. I mean, the, the guy at 2.2 is running more than some of the people at 2.4 and 2.5. Is he better at better at conserving energy then to allow him to run greater distances? This is where it gets interesting. And this is where I'm hoping if we talk again in a year or two, there's some interesting stuff. I've I've been thinking about what so there's we're already seeing variation basically in how much physical work people can do at a certain metabolic scope which I wasn't really expecting. Um, and what that tells us is that there's got to be variation coming from somewhere. And so some possibilities, um, we're talking about runners right now. So could it be that some of these runners are just that much more economical, that they're burning fewer calories per mile, and therefore they can run more miles within that roughly two and a half limit? I don't think that's likely. We know that the variation in cost of running between people is not significant enough to explain the, you know, the variation we're seeing. Um, some more likely explanations: maybe some of these athletes compensate more than others, metabolically compensate more than others. So if your if your basal metabolic rate slows down more than that twenty to thirty percent that that we've seen, maybe that is the key to being able to train a lot and being a great ultra athlete. So, you know, maybe the key to a really high energy expenditure is that you can reduce your BMR, you can metabolically compensate more than other people. There's got to be variation in that. I mean, it's a physiological trait. It's a complex one, you know, related to thyroid hormones and whatever else, but it's, it's a physiological trait. There's variation and we know so little about that variation. Well, it's interesting on just on that note, if you think about overtraining and think about going into low energy availability and that sort of that whole area. But I do know there are athletes who who are really robust with regards to sex hormones and 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 their ability to recover, yet they seem to do such, you know, they they seem to um put out a lot of energy. So yeah, I agree. There must be some variation there yeah so that's that's one thing we really want to look at um and i'm already scheming the ways that we could you know try to test that um just by measuring bmr and how it how it changes um over different training cycles etc um so hopefully that's and and do you run would you run blood panels or get your athletes to run blood panels at the same time to sort of see what is see where their sort of hormone levels might be at at any given sort of time in their training cycle yeah i mean we would we would definitely want to see where where that energy savings is coming from and so some markers of that you know we could look at 
markers of the immune system and measures of inflammation. And if, if those are going down, we could say, all right, they are pulling back energy from immune function, which, which might not be bad. And it might be really depending how much they're pulling back. Right. Maybe they're, you know, they could be reducing sex hormone levels, which, which most athletes do, especially endurance athletes, which, you know, in light of these data and, you know, Ponser's data, now we're starting, I think we should be considering reduced testosterone and other sex hormone levels in athletes as, as evidence of metabolic compensation. So yeah, yeah sure. I do think we'd want to be doing blood panels. Yeah. And um, Drew, do you have any data on women, on females and how? Great question. We have six, yeah. six athletes right now analyzed one woman. Okay. Interesting. So that is, and... that is a goal moving forward. Oh, for sure, because it'd, it'd be super interesting to understand whether or not the same, like, is that metabolic scope, is the ceiling a little bit lower, is it higher, right. you know, what um, what it might take to sort of, I don't know, like, push that and, and what it looks like over a course of, you know, over a, a group of females as opposed to just one, but an interesting case study nonetheless. Yeah. And so when we only have a sample size of one female right now, that basically is a case study. And so we yeah. need to get way more of these data so that we can, you know, the thing with this project is it really raises a lot more questions than it answers. Which is great, right? Which is great. I mean, it means there's a lot of work to do. There's some grants to write and there's not a lot of people doing this stuff. So, so there's space to learn things and to do some work, which is great. Now, I mentioned in my email I sent to you um, a couple of days ago, and I'm not sure whether you know much about what they're doing, but the Norwegian athletes, <laughs> uh, the, the triathletes who seem to be using like a similar sort of uh, modality to figure out how much they can train on any given week, given the number of calories that they can actually sort of take in. Is this that sort of application of the work that you're doing? Is this how you sort of see it being applied in that athletic context? Yeah, this is, I mean, I embarrassingly i have i am not familiar with what they're doing and actually if you remember would you maybe send it to me oh absolutely it is um gustav eden gustav eden and christian blumenfeld have you heard of those names before drew no but i'm not really plugged into the triathlon no it's all good so the um the norwegians so both of them they're part of the same team and they're under a coach do you listen to rich roll podcast once in a while. Yeah, okay. So he has had both of them on plus the coach. Um, and they use exactly this method to sort of determine their a training load that they do in any given week. So if they've pushed beyond the limit of what they know that they so they've used doubly labeled water to measure their energy expenditure and they've calculated how many calories that they can actually um feasibly take on board and they use it to determine their training loads week to week. I'm I'm giving a very rough sort of um description of what he actually does but super interesting yeah it sounds like they are they are ahead of the curve um i mean this is something that herman and i and actually joe mcconaughey have talked about you know maybe developing uh but it, it sounds like i mean in the future when we really understand all this stuff but it seems like they're not they're not waiting for all that they're just doing it which is cool i mean that's that's what that's what athletes of, do right that's what athletes and coaches right, I mean, do so often there are athletes of, and coaches are on the bleeding edge and they figure out stuff and then the scientists validate later or don't. I mean, half of what they do, uh, you know, like ice baths, probably not good. Yeah. But for how many decades were we told to need to ice everything? And then yeah, you totally. actually look back at you know, at the at the science of it, and you're like, why did we ever think that was good? I know, yeah, but, uh, it feels good. But... but no, totally, they're on the cutting edge, and it sounds this sounds really cool. And I look forward to yeah. actually seeing what they're doing. And you should actually reach out to them, Drew, and just um, and just yeah. I mean, look, hey, you've got like hours and hours of teaching and, and writing and all the rest of it that you've got sort of to do. But it's, uh, but hey, if you ever got a spare moment, like I'm sure that that um, even listening to the podcast with the coach would be super interesting. That's probably where I'll start. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good idea. So Drew, where do you see this being applied for me as a typical endurance runner who enjoy, who might have a training load of, I don't know, eight hours a week or whatever, but trains for one to two bigger events of the year? Like how can your research be applied to someone like me, do you think? That's a good question. I I don't want to, I don't know. I'm a bit of, I don't want to say Luddite. That's not really the word. I am skeptical when it comes to trying to apply, you know, cutting edge scientific ideas to athletic performance, if only because I think 
90% of what it takes to be a successful endurance athlete, we already know what it is. Yeah. Right. It's train your ass off. It's eat enough calories and get enough salt and water. Yeah, sure. Actually, I think that's 95%. (laughs) So the 5% is what everyone argues about and inflates it into being more like 50%. Like you got to drink your beet juice or or else you're not going to win a race. And it's like, that's bullshit. Yeah. Okay. Now we're talking about the 5% that doesn't matter for most of us. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know that there's going to be a direct application of this for most athletes. Yeah. I think there will be applications of this for athletes who are training at the limits of energy expenditure, which honestly, most of us aren't. I mean, because if you just do the math on, on what is roughly two and a half times BMR, you know. Yeah. Let me think. If my, if my BMR is like 1700 calories, then that's right. Yeah. 3,400 plus another eight, 850. Yeah. Like 4150. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, there are certainly days that I'm sure that, that your total energy expenditure is four to four and a half thousand calories a day. But the insights from this research that will be applicable for athletes will be for people who are doing that every day on average. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. Because most of us will have days like that, and then we'll take a couple days where we're repaying that, you know, energetic debt. Mm -hmm. But there are people who don't repay that debt, and they're always right on that edge. And I think for those athletes, it will be like like this Norwegian team is doing, actually having a sort of gold standard measurement of energy expenditure, which can be double labeled water, or even better, live in a metabolic chamber for a day. And then if you actually could track it. then that could be helpful for them. But for the rest of us, I think this will, I think the utility of this won't be huge for most of us. It'll, it's more contributing to our understandings of evolved metabolic processes. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of learning stuff just for the sake of learning it. And it, it always, uh, I don't know, even in my field, I'm a biological anthropologist. There's always this push for how can your research, you know, be applied for human this or that or, you know, for the betterment of society. And I'm like, honestly, I'm not, I don't usually care. <laughs> yeah. like, like, you know, I went into science to get my mind blown all the time. There's, you know, like the universe is amazing and the human body is amazing. I just want to know where we came from. And everyone's like, well, how is this applied? I'm like, there are applications of everything, but that's not why I'm doing it. Nah, and do you know what, Drew? I absolutely love that because I'm like you. Like, there's nothing I like more. Actually, you didn't say this, but I love just spending an hour on PubMed with an idea in my head and then just saying, what do we know about this? For no other reason than just to uh, inform a better understanding about a particular topic. So, and even just the ability to have conversations about it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, it's another hour spent talking about things that I'm interested in. So, if really that's the application for me, I'm I'm happy to leave it there. <laughs> I mean, I may have a very different answer in two years. I might be, you know, hawking some product. Like, actually, we have developed this thing that oh, I really think everyone it. should be subscribed. <laughs> Maybe. And, if, you know, and then we're going to be erasing the words I just said here. Yeah, now. yeah, which is no problem at all. So you've got a, you've got a paper that's in, in, that is in progress for about to be published. When will that come out, Drew, do you think? Oh, well, I have to make the edits to it. Uh, I would imagine it'll be out by summer. That's awesome. And then if anyone just sort of does fall into the training parameters plus the geographical location of of your study, how best would they contact you? Oh, email, please. Um, Well, I would say email or you can find me on Twitter. Also, the running primate on on Twitter. Um, Or, yeah, email andrew.best at mcla. That's an that's an M as in as in mom MCLA mm-hmm. edu, um, and yeah, and if you're you know if you live close enough that you can send frozen samples to North Carolina USA without them thawing, um, and you're training twenty plus hours a week in some you know some kind of endurance sport, uh, we are we are interested. Amazing, Drew. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mickey. It's been fun.
Okay, so a little bit geeky, but not in a bad way. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation and absolutely, you know, check out Andrew's Twitter because I think that that's where we'll find his most recent research when it's published and we'll just be able to be kept up to date uh, with what's going on in his space. Next week on the podcast, I speak to medical doctor Vivian Lowe all about obesity and metabolic health, which is a fascinating conversation. Until then, you can catch me over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to signing up to one of my meal plans, you can book a one-on-one call with me. All right, team, you guys have the best week. Talk soon.